there, I'm Rose, and this is a brand new podcast from Gizmodo called Meanwhile in the Future. Normally, I won't start every episode with an excited hello like this, but since this is our first episode, I figured I would give you a little bit of a heads up on what you're about to hear. Meanwhile in the Future is a podcast about the future. Specifically, it's a podcast in which we take on one potential future and try to really overthink what that future would look like. So every episode, we're going to do two things. First, we take a trip into a fictitious future and hear some wildly speculative ideas about what that future might look and sound like. Then we come back to now and talk to a few experts about what exactly would happen if that future we just visited were real. It's sort of like a time machine, but with experts and without disrupting the balance of the universe. Some of these futures will seem almost possible. Things like external wombs or accelerated climate change or drugs that make us never need to sleep. Others are going to be pretty far out there, and some of them will be completely impossible. So I hope you're ready to do some future imagination with me. Sit back, relax, and let's overthink some things. This week, we're going to start in the year 2035. For World Public Radio News in Washington, I'm Leon Fisher-Davis. Scientists have announced the first fully functional artificial womb. Researchers at Carnegie Temple University say they have carried a fetus to term for the first time ever, delivering a baby from the artificial uterus without complications. The scientists have named the baby boy Adam. In health tech news, the first company offering to develop babies in artificial wombs opened their waiting list today. The company called Stavia says they'll be able to accommodate a small number of couples in their trial run. According to a Stavia spokesperson, the company has already received over 1,000 applicants. Hello, you've reached Stavia, the womb away from home. Para Español, a prima dos. If you know your party's extension, you may dial it at any time. If you're calling to speak with a certified womb specialist, please press 1. If you're calling to apply for womb space, please press 2. If you're calling to check on the status of your baby, please press 3. Please enter your baby's seven-digit womb code now, followed by the pound key. If you would like to leave a message for your baby, please press 1. If you would like to hear what your baby is listening to now, please press 2. This is what your baby is currently hearing. To change the soundtrack, press 3 at any time. The first baby carried to term in an artificial womb at the Stavia facility went home with her parents today. Amanda and Patrick Henderson were escorted by armed guards to and from the facility, but were able to retrieve their child without any incidents. In a press release, the family said they were looking forward to spending time with the baby girl, who they named Rokea. So now we have external wombs. Babies no longer require nine months of motherly gestation. It can all be outsourced. What happens next? Well, it would be the usual kerfluffle 
That's Lois McMaster Bujold. She's a science fiction author who's won the Hugo for Best Novel four times, and in a number of her books, characters have to deal with this technology. She calls them uterine replicators. Uterine replicators in particular came up almost as a side thing in my first story. And then I got to thinking about uh, what else can I do with this? This means that Bujold has thought through this scenario for a lot longer than I have. Artificial wombs bring up a ton of questions about women, parenting, medical ethics, and we'll get into some of those soon. But first, at the very simplest level, Bujold said that there would be some really serious benefits to women. It instantly drops maternal mortality and morbidity to zero. No woman would ever have to die in childbirth. It'd be uh, uh, variously crippled or undergo severe uh, illnesses, eclampsia, preeclampsia, placenta previa. If you don't know these terms, you you need to go look them up. According to the United Nations, about 800 women die every day from preventable causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. Now, these deaths largely occur in developing nations, and those women would probably not be the first ones to have access to this technology. It would first be adopted by the rich, which means that they would get to be the guinea pigs for the rest of us, uh, which, depending on how you feel about the rich, could be, you know, fine. Uh, You know, that's not all bad. And here we have our first wrinkle in the promise of artificial wombs. Since this technology is pretty complicated, it's less likely that the uterine replicator will go the way of the cell phone. In other words, it will probably continue to be something that only people with money can access. You know, the equivalent of carrying a Gucci bag will be you have access to the artificial womb, you know, so you never have to get those stretch marks and you never have to have your breasts (laughs) uh, flabby in the way that they would be if you went through natural pregnancy. That's Maureen Sanders-Stout. She's a philosopher who's written about the ethical quandaries that ectogenesis, another name for artificial wombs, presents. Sanders-Stout isn't quite as positive about the artificial womb as Bujold is. She has a lot of questions. What happens, for example, to a woman's reproductive rights? Some authors have argued that if this technology would come about, that it would completely erode the right to abortion. And their argument is that the right to an abortion is the right to bodily integrity. It's not the right to secure the death of a fetus, especially if the notion of when is a fetus viable is eroded. You could imagine a scenario, for example, in which politicians decide that because artificial wombs can carry a baby to term, abortions are no longer legal. To put that into perspective, according to the CDC, in 2011, there were 730,322 legal abortions. That's a lot of babies that suddenly are carried to term and need a parent. That's the population of Detroit or Fort Worth, Texas, every year. These are both cities in the top 20 most populated cities in the United States. Who is responsible for all of those babies? Uh, at the end of uh, end of the cycle on a uterine replicator, what you have is a baby, which requires maternal care. So what are you going to do about that? This is a problem that is frequently skipped over in science fiction stories because they don't want to deal with the messy bits. And who is keeping these babies from becoming test subjects or sold into slavery or something else? Sometimes tissue currently is removed from people's bodies and is used by the medical establishment to develop patents and other things. And sometimes patients don't even know this happens. And um, the legal system has traditionally ruled that, um, you know, that's waste. So anything you leave behind, you kind of forfeit your rights to it. 
However, I think in this case, few women would view an embryo being removed as kind of like, oh, I just left a piece of my spleen behind or something. Probably there would be legal um, precedent, some kind of contract, you know, where you would be able to declare what you wanted to be done with this. And if you did have the option of freezing it, like we do right now with in vitro fertilization, then it wouldn't necessarily be viewed as like, well, you've aborted it or you've killed it. It could just be that this embryo is sort of put in a limbo. And even if the fetus has a set of parents, if they are housed in a facility far away, who is in charge of them? If something goes wrong with the machines, who is liable? I think one of the first areas of law that would develop around this would be to create very clear, as clear as possible, kind of contracts at each phase. Now, Bujold is a lot less dystopian about all of this. This is not a technology to be alarmist about. Uh, I think it it will be used well and it will be used badly if it comes into existence. And I don't see why it couldn't. It doesn't require, you know, imaginary physics the way a lot of science fiction ideas do. Not that it's going to be easy or simple or any of those things. But that doesn't mean that uh, that it isn't going to be wonderful for some people. And some of the people that it's wonderful for will be men. Don't worry, men, we have not forgotten about you. You could suddenly find yourselves having families without women involved at all. This is actually the entire plot of one of Bujold's books. Ethan of Athos is about a planet called Athos populated entirely by men. And they survive, in the long run, by using uterine replicators and a bank of ovarian tissue that they brought with them when they settled on Athos. For the first time, this would break the female monopoly on reproduction. I mean, we've had a lot of science fiction stories about the Amazon planet, the planet of all women. You know. So what would, what would happen if, uh, if it were turned around, you know, if you could have a planet of, of men without women, how would that work? You know, could it be a viable society? Part of it was just my snarky desire to make men do all the housework. So, you know, the guys would have to learn how to, uh, how to take care, which, you know, I don't underestimate them. I think they could. Now, the chances of men taking these uterine replicators off into space to build a utopian man planet is pretty slim. But here on Earth, those machines could facilitate a whole new kind of family. This would really open the door for men to be parents, single men to be parents, for um, gay men to be parents, for groups of just men to become parents. In fact, what it actually means to be a mother probably changes in this future world of wombs. Motherhood would just mean the person who secured the right to the infant once it was born, I guess. I think that's what it would be. Here's the thing. While some of the topics we tackle on this podcast are totally insane, this one is totally not. External wombs are coming. Every year we get better and better at keeping premature babies alive. And at the same time, we're working on all sorts of fetal creation technologies. So these questions are coming, and they don't have easy answers. Oh, it never gets simpler. It never gets easier. Uh, But, you know, it's biology. It's erratic. It's individual. It's never going to be simple. It's never, ever going to be perfect. So the future is going to be full of questions like this one. How much of our human biology do we really want to hand over to technology? Like, I am concerned that we tend to look at technology as clean and, and, um, and more perfect and, you know, doesn't involve pain. And, and those things are true. 
Um, but there are some things that perhaps are sacrificed as well. And one of them is the realization that life is messy and life is fragile and life is painful. And there are a ton of things that we didn't touch on here. Things like the biological connection between a mother and a fetus, the possibility for genetic testing and engineering of these babies, what pregnancy does for gender relations in the workplace. But we don't have time. There are just too many ways to overthink this potential future. So if you want to keep working through this scenario with us, head to gizmodo.com, where we're going to post a bunch of links and additional thoughts on artificial wombs. So for now, I'll sign off. And thanks for listening to our very first episode of Meanwhile in the Future. Meanwhile, In the Future is a podcast from Gizmodo. It's produced by me, Rose Eveleth, with help from Annalie Newitz, Meg Neal, Michael Hessian, Kyla Hale-Stern, Darren Orff, and the rest of the Gizmodo staff. This week's intro music was by Asura, and the outro music that you are listening to right now is by Broke for Free. If you have ideas for possible futures that we should be imagining, we would love to hear them. You can leave them in the comments or send us a note at overthinkingit at gizmodo.com. See you next time.